Welcome to the Statesman Journal's Explore Oregon podcast. I'm your host, Zachary Ness, and in each episode, we highlight Oregon's most beautiful and interesting places. In this short episode, we're doing a quick news update on a few stories I've been reporting, including an interview I did with Oregon Public Broadcasting last Friday. Before we get rolling, I want to highlight the sponsors of this podcast that make it possible for us to hire and pay outdoor journalism interns for the work they do every spring, summer, and fall. Our first sponsor is the American Forest Resource Council, supporting responsible forestry on public lands throughout the Pacific Northwest. Learn more at amforest.org. We're also brought to you by Visit Tillamook Coast, which reminds you that winter safety is paramount, especially during king tides and heavy rains that characterize this season. To stay safe, it's crucial for residents and visitors to be aware of high and low tides and coastal flood warnings. Stay informed, heed warnings, and be prepared for rapidly changing conditions to ensure winter safety on the Oregon coast. Finally, the Oregon Parks and Recreation Department invites Oregonians to explore parks this fall and winter to experience the beauty of those seasons. If you're camping, remember to get firewood from sources local to your destination to avoid bringing invasive insects, such as the devastating emerald ash borer, into parks. This will help preserve the health of Oregon's forest for seasons to come. Learn more about protecting Oregon's ash trees at stateparks.oregon.gov. All right, up next, we're going to dive into some of the news, including wildfire trials, where 2023 ranked in terms of heat and dryness, and a few other stories of note. But first, here's some guitar music to get us rolling. And yes, you will hear some new music in this spot going forward this year because, hey, music is fun and why not? Welcome to what's going to be a pretty quick little podcast. I was on Oregon Public Broadcasting's Morning Edition last Friday, and since they shared that audio with me for this podcast, I thought I'd toss together a quick little news episode. We're going to touch on a handful of topics, including where 2023 ranked in terms of temperature and rainfall in Oregon. I'll also have a few timber and wildfire stories, but the first one is that just this last week, a jury awarded a new batch of wildfire victims $85 million from Pacificor. So here's the audio from my interview with OPB from last Friday. And now to you, Zach. Earlier this week, a jury awarded nine survivors of Oregon's 2020 Labor Day fires a total of $85 million in the latest court case against Pacificorp. Can you remind us how many different settlements and awards we've already seen against Pacificorp for the damage of those fires? Sure. So in terms of trial verdicts, we had the one this week that you mentioned. And then last June, a different jury awarded 17 survivors of four of the Labor Day fires, right around 90 million. Uh, both of those awards were for fires in the Sanium Canyon, uh, the Lincoln City area and Southern Oregon. But in addition to that, uh, in December, Pacificor settled with victims and businesses impacted by the Archie Creek fire down in the North Umpqua Canyon, east of Roseburg. Uh, that settlement was for about a half billion dollars. 
I'd add the Pacific Corps is still in litigation over the 2020 Slater fire and the 2022 McKinney fire down on the Oregon and California border. So yeah, their lawyers have been pretty busy lately. And with all of those other cases that came before, how was this week's case different? Yeah, this case was an interesting one. We've taken to calling it a mini trial and it's come out of kind of an odd situation. So to back up just a little, uh, a second ago, I mentioned a verdict that included four Labor Day fires, including most notably the Sanium Canyon fires. Uh, this is actually part of a large class action lawsuit that includes around 5,000 people impacted by those fires. Now, in the, the original trial back in June, a jury ruled that Pacific Corps was liable to all of them, meaning it potentially owes money to around 5,000 people impacted by the fires. And there's disagreement about how to determine how the people should be paid for their losses. And where they landed is having these mini trials where the victims come in, a jury listens to their story and decides how much money they should get. These trials aren't about determining who's at fault because the jury already decided that the first time around back in June. These are about how much the survivors should get paid for their economic and non-economic damages. And in this most recent case, it was around 85 million. And how many more of these cases are still to come? So there's two more of these mini trials scheduled. And then the judges order the two sides, so the fire victims and Pacific Corps, to go into mediation with the hopes of reaching a settlement. Because as you can imagine, trials for you know all 5,000 fire victims would take a really long time. And Pacific Corps said that they're going to appeal all of these cases. So how long might it be until any of the plaintiffs see any of this money? Yeah, it could be a number of years. Uh, Pacific Corps has objected to basically every step of the class action trial they fall filed multiple appeals at this point. They've consistently said that they're willing to pay out all reasonable claims, but it's pretty clear they don't think the current proceedings are reasonable. And that's probably not a surprise because the way things are going, they're going to end up on the hook for billions and billions of dollars. That's Acker Ness with the Salem Statesman Journal. Find more on these and other stories at opb.org. Well, one thing I didn't get to mention in that quick OPB hit was the people who got the awards have some remarkable stories. So among the victims that were awarded that $85 million, there was 101-year-old Frank King, a World War II veteran and a former correspondent for the Statesman Journal. King lost the home he'd lived in since 1990 when it was destroyed in the Echo Mountain Fire in the Otis area near Lincoln City. Another plaintiff with a crazy story was Scott Johnson of Gates, who woke up Labor Day to flames surrounding his house, and he escaped with his wife and their cat by jumping off a cliff into the North Santium River where they spent the night. Now, the two of them are musicians, and so to pass time that night, the couple sang a song with the lyrics, Humble yourself in the sight of fire as flames surrounded them all during the night. A third victim was Corey Stanforth who, when the fire was blazing, rushed back to his farm in an attempt to save his pendant chickens and livestock before realizing that the fire had encircled him. So he was actually forced to run through a wall of flame to escape back to his wife, who was nine months pregnant at the time. So there's a lot of dramatic stories that uh, come out of this. I mean, a lot of times you only read that big number, you know, jury awards, you know, $85 million to wildfire victims. But when you really dig into the stories, there are some remarkable things that happened during, you know, what I've called just the craziest 24-hour period in Oregon's modern history. All 
All right, another news story that I wrote last week was my annual year in review on weather data for the past year, in this case, 2023. So last year was Oregon's 15th warmest year in records that date back to 1894. The average temperature statewide was 48.1 degrees, which was just a little bit cooler than the last three years, but still continued a string of historically warm years that mirror worldwide trends toward a hotter climate. It was particularly hot this summer in the Willamette Valley. It was Portland's second hottest year in 85 years of records. It was the eighth warmest in Eugene and the 11th warmest in Salem. This has become pretty standard stuff at this point, but it's still worth noting that of the 18 warmest years in Oregon's recorded history, again, going back to the 1800s, 10 of them have come since 2000. And this year, with the El Nino influence on top of that, on top of that background warming, you know, we're expected to make a run at the hottest year on record, uh, which is currently held by 2015. Other weather data of note was that Eugene was just really dry, the fifth driest on record. Uh, right now, all the rain we're getting is really helping with the overall drought, but you'll still see Eugene listed under this category of moderate drought right now just because of how dry it was last spring and summer. It was kind of funky in this way. You know, Eugene was really dry. Salem was just a little drier than normal. And Portland was actually normal and actually a little bit above normal. So it was kind of crazy the way it happened this year that it just moving south to north, it got wetter and wetter. The last little note that I'll toss you is that, as ever, the Oregon coast continues to be the most insulated from climate change just due to the ocean. So the temperatures that you see at the coast tend to be the closest to historical averages. The Willamette Valley is a decent bit warmer, but east of the Cascades, it has been a lot warmer and a lot drier. At this point, the farther you get from the ocean, the more impact you see from climate change. So in the future, might not be a bad idea to consider setting up base at the coast, unless, of course, it gets hit by the Cascadia earthquake, which is another thing to worry about. And a fun note is that just last week marked the 324th anniversary of the last mega Cascadia earthquake in the Northwest. So in 1700, an estimated 8.7 to 9.2 mega earthquake rattled the Pacific Northwest. Now, how in the world do we know that? How we know that is based on one of the most interesting science mysteries of all time. The story about how scientists pieced together that there was, in fact, massive earthquakes just off the Oregon coast in the past gets into some Agatha Christie type detail and includes stuff like sunken ghost forests, tales from indigenous cultures, and finally, records from all the way over in Japan. And that informs our knowledge that sometime in the future, it is, it's going to happen again. Now, there's a lot of places you can read about this incredible, you know, scientific mystery story. But one that I'd recommend is from friend of the podcast, Bonnie Henderson. Uh, she's been on here a couple times talking about the Oregon Coast Trail. And she wrote a book called The Next Tsunami, Living on the Restless Coast. Um, so that's worth a read. There's other resources you can read too, but I highly recommend it. If you love science, if you love, you know, a good mystery, it's hard to beat this one. All right, up next, I didn't want to do two lawsuit stories in a row, but the next lawsuit story is just too interesting not to mention. 
So here in the San Am Canyon, uh, Frera's Timber Company has filed a lawsuit against the U.S. Forest Service over the federal agency's failure to put out the Beachy Creek Fire. The timber company says in its lawsuit that Willamette National Forest's negligent failure to follow its own mandated fire attack plan led to one of the largest and deadliest wildfires in state history. Now, if you listen to this podcast, you know that I have written a ton about the Beachy Creek Fire over the years, but I'll give you a real quick breakdown of it. So the Beachy Creek Fire originated in the Opal Creek Wilderness in mid-August of 2020. It was ignited by lightning, and it remained small for a number of weeks. We weren't really that worried about it. In early September, the fire started to grow, and then it exploded during historically powerful east winds September 7th and 8th. That fire eventually merged with fires ignited by downed power lines in the Saniam Canyon, and then the combination Saniam Beachy Fire burned 193,000 acres. They killed five people and destroyed hundreds of homes. It was... A generational calamity. So this story is interesting because after the fire and after the aftermath, I did a really detailed investigative story into how the Forest Service managed the Beachy Creek fire. And it really comes down to this. They did try to put it out originally, but pretty quick decided that it was too dangerous to fight on the ground because the terrain where it was was deep in the wilderness. It was basically on the side of a mountain. And they actually had two elite hotshot teams come in kind of assess the conditions and, and, you know, they made the call. They said, you know, we don't want to fight this fire because it's too dangerous. So they made that call. And so the Forest Service does what it tends to do in these situations where they try to put a little box around it. They put fire lines around it. They're supposed to catch the fire if it does grow. It just so happened that the strongest east winds in recorded history in September happened to hit it and that caused it to explode. Now, Freres, the timber company who lost a bunch of forest land when this fire blew up, they contend that the Forest Service is, is at fault here because they labeled it a full suppression fire, meaning they were supposed to do everything they could to put it out, but then they never really tried to actually put it out. They did dump a decent amount of water on it, but they went almost you know a week and a half without dumping water on it. They didn't use fire retardant. They never tried to come back at it and put it out with uh, ground fire personnel. So they're not wrong, but the thing is the lawsuit is very likely going to get tossed out. And that's because it's just hard to sue the federal government for how it manages fires. Pretty much every case like this gets dismissed because the government wants to allow its officials to manage fires without the threat of a lawsuit hanging over their head. But it is interesting that Pacificor, which I started this podcast with, they might end, out, they might end up paying out billions of dollars to fire victims while the forest service role is kind of overlooked minimized you know it certainly isn't overlooked by people in the sanium canyon many of whom blame the forest service far more than the pacificor but the pacificor is on the hook largely because the way our courts work it's just a lot easier to sue pacificor although this new lawsuit from frere's timber company will put that to the test all right we're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors then we're going to come back with a few timber-related news briefs and stories. This message is brought to you by Visit Tillamook Coast. The Tillamook Coast welcomes you for local coastal adventures. And while we invite you to explore the natural beauty of Oregon's coast during the winter season, we also advise you to be aware of winter weather and plan for it. 
You may picture yourself hiking through lush forests, beachcombing along rocky shores, or discovering tide pools teeming with life. Yes, the Tillamook Coast offers a unique playground for outdoor enthusiasts and nature lovers alike. But nature's power is undeniable, especially during king tides and heavy rains. Stay safe by checking tide schedules and monitoring coastal flood warnings. Always keep an eye on weather forecasts and road conditions. Remember to pack essentials like water, flashlights, and warm clothing. If you plan to hike, avoid areas prone to landslides during or after heavy rainfall. Explore our region's winter wonders, but do so with safety in mind and a deep respect for the forces of nature. To learn more about winter weather on the Tillamook Coast, visit TillamookCoast.com and plan your unforgettable winter journey. with Roseburg Forest Products. As a professional forester, I was drawn to Oregon by the trees and the vastness of Oregon's majestic outdoors. I'm proud to work for a family-owned, fully integrated wood products company with a deep commitment to our industry and our communities. Roseburg's sustainably managed timberlands are open for recreation and provide natural wood products that help make people's lives better from the ground up. We are proud members of AFRC, sponsor of the Explore Oregon podcast. Learn more at amforest.org. All right, welcome back. Well, I'm going to end with three pressing news stories related to logging and conservation. So the first one is related to state forests. So in a nutshell, Oregon is entering the home stretch of a debate over a controversial plan that would scale back logging on state forests. Right now, state forester Cal Mukamoto is taking listening sessions with the public before he makes his final recommendation to the Oregon Board of Forestry. The goal here is to conserve forests for endangered species, but it would also mean less money for rural communities that get timber revenue and run their local government based on timber sales on state lands. Another big one is that the U.S. Forest Service is planning to update and amend the landmark Northwest Forest Plan, the 1994 management plan that governs much of the forests on, in the Pacific Northwest. And in the last segment, we talked about state forests. So that's forests that Oregon owns. In this case, we're talking about federal forests, which are much larger, like all the big national forests. They are governed federally by this Northwest Forest Plan. So here's a quote from the Forest Service about what they're seeking to accomplish in revising and amending this plan. They said, while the plan has guided important progress over the past three decades, changed ecological and social conditions are challenging the effectiveness of this plan. So there's a two-day public comment period and get-together with the U.S. Forest Service that, that includes a number of groups, and that is taking place at the University of Oregon on January 30th and February 1st. So right as you're listening to this, if you want to learn more about this, head down to the U of O. You can find a lot of the information online. Finally, an uplast legislation to protect Southeast Oregon's Oahe River Canyon passed the U.S. Senate Committee on Energy and Natural Resources in late December. So U.S. Senator Ron Wyden and Jeff Merkley, who are both Oregon Democrats, 
have sought to strike a balance between protecting 1.1 million acres of Oregon's most remote river canyons while allowing flexibility for ranching in the region. The current bill is called the Malheur Community Empowerment for the Oahe Act, and the bill now moves to the Senate for consideration, but it would still have to pass the House as well. Now, conservation groups have been working to protect the Oahe Canyonlands for almost as long as I've been an outdoor reporter. It's just seen as one of these vast, large areas that is currently not protected, and there's been a lot of effort to do that. If the, you know, if it was transformed into a wilderness, it would you know, really up the amount of protected land that Oregon has. It came pretty close in the waning months of the Obama presidency when it was strongly considered to be designated as a national monument under the Antiquities Act. But then the Malheur occupation happened and it kind of scared the advisors of Obama off that idea and it didn't happen. Since then, there has been more community input from, from that area. Wyden, Wyden and Merkley have really work toward a solution that both sides can live with, including the ranching community that lives there, the conservation community that's trying to protect it. But not much public lands legislation passes Congress these days, so we'll just have to see. In my experience, these types of bills seem to pass when you least expect it, so stay tuned on that one. Okay, that's it for our short little news brief edition of the podcast. We'll be back with some longer and more in-depth episodes in early February. All right, well, that's about all the time we have left in today's show. If you liked what you've heard, check out our catalog of more than 60 episodes featuring Oregon's most beautiful and interesting places at statesmanjournal.com explore, along with Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, and Spotify. We'd once again like to thank our sponsors, beginning with the American Forest Resources Council. AFRC supports responsible forestry on public lands throughout the Pacific Northwest for our environment, for our economy, and for the future. Learn more at amforests.org. We'd also like to thank Visit Tillamook Coast. If you want to plan a trip out there, you can check out their outdoor recreation map that shows all the places to hike, swim, boat, and camp. You can find that map at tillamookcoast.com recreation hyphen map. Once again, that's tillamookcoast.com recreation hyphen map. And thanks to the Oregon Parks and Recreation Department, which stresses the importance of recreating responsibly and leaving no trace in Oregon's outdoors. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us next time for the next edition of the Explore Oregon podcast.